Hello and welcome to Natasha Explains It All. Today's episode is going to focus on public corruption and I'm going to be talking about one high-profile American figure and one high-profile Brazilian figure. I'm drawing some parallels and some comparisons between the two of them um, as I've done in prior episodes to help, you know, help my listeners have a more global perspective on some of, you know, uh, on current affairs. Um, so the two people that I'm going to be focusing on for this episode are Justice Clarence Thomas in the United States, um, who is one of the justices, one of the judges on the Supreme Court of the United States, the highest court in the United States, as well as Jair Bolsonaro, who is the former president of Brazil. So I'm going to start in the United States and then we will migrate to Brazil later in the episode. So you may have heard uh, the name Clarence Thomas a lot lately. His name has been appearing in the news a lot. And what is that all about? Well, a little bit of background context. Clarence Thomas, as I mentioned, is one of the nine justices, on, meaning judges, of the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is the highest court in the United States. And the Supreme Court um, interprets federal law and is the highest court within the federal court system. Um, but because um, federal law trumps state law in the United States, basically the Supreme Court gets the final say on matters of American law. So it is an incredibly important and incredibly powerful body. And Clarence Thomas has been on the Supreme Court since the early 90s. And he is the second, um, he is the second black man on the Supreme Court and also the second black person um, on the Supreme Court. The first was Justice Thurgood, Thurgood Marshall and then Clarence Thomas was the second. Um, Clarence Thomas, um, his ideology has always been um, right wing, uh, always quite, I mean, he is, um, has long been the most conservative member of the Supreme Court. That's changed um, recently with the additions to the Supreme Court during the Trump years. Um, but Thomas, I mean, I think even with those changes, he remains, if not the most, one of the most right-wing uh, justices on the Supreme Court. Now, Thomas um, has been making the headlines recently because he has failed to disclose that for decades he has been receiving all paid vacations by someone named Harlan Crow. And Harlan Crow is a billionaire who is also a key GOP donor. And by GOP, I am referring to the Republican Party. The GOP is another moniker for the party that stands for Grand Old Party. Um, so the GOP meaning the Republican Party. And this, uh, uh, this person, Harlan Crow, who again is a billionaire, he's one of the top donors for Republican campaigns and Republican uh, causes, has been funding extremely luxurious vacations for uh, Clarence Thomas and his wife, Ginny Thomas, for decades. 
and Thomas hasn't disclosed these. And these, these vacations and trips include um, traveling on private jets and private yachts and private vacation homes. Um, there were reports that one of these trips alone cost something to the tune of $500,000. And, you know, Thomas didn't pay for any of that. These were gifted by this person who is obviously trying to buy access and influence to someone who wields enormous power over the course of American law. Now, the problem here, I mean, that, that in itself sounds problematic, right? Um, and I think if anyone, if that were to happen in any other industry, people would be like, well, clearly this person is trying to buy access, right? They're trying to buy influence. Here with the Supreme Court, um, Clarence Thomas as a justice on the Supreme Court is required to disclose gifts that he receives. There are certain financial disclosures that, the Supreme, that justices of the Supreme Court are required to disclose for obvious reasons, right? We want to avoid conflicts of interests. We want people who are supposed to be arbiters of the law to not be unduly influenced by the people who bring cases before them. And this is a clear conflict of interest because someone like Harlan Crow is very much a funder of the type of uh, right-wing causes that bring cases before the Supreme Court. And even just the appearance, right, of that conflict of interest is very detrimental to the public's faith in the Supreme Court as being any type of neutral arbiter. And the issue with Harlan Crow is there's so many layers to it. So not only has Justice Thomas failed to disclose that this person has been paying for him and his wife to go on these super luxurious vacations for decades, and he hasn't disclosed, you know, these, these gifts, right? Um, these gifts that are clearly designed to buy influence and access. Harlan Crow and his wife only began to cultivate this, what they call friendship, after Justice Thomas was appointed to the Supreme Court in the early 90s. So it's not like they've been, you know, childhood friends and they've known each other before Thomas had enormous influence um, over, the, over, you know, American law. Um, Harlan Crow uh, cultivated this relationship after Thomas had that power, and Thomas hasn't disclosed that for decades. Adding to the conflict of interest and um, impropriety of this situation, it has also come out that Thomas has failed to disclose that Harlan Crow also bought property from Thomas. He bought Thomas's childhood home as well as some adjoining um, plots of land including the home that Justice Thomas's mother uh, lived in for decades after the purchase of that, uh, of that property, and to some reports still lives there. And, you know, and then he has made serious renovations since. So this raises tons of additional questions too, right? Like, because there's reports about like, did this guy actually pay far, fair market value for these for these uh, for this property, or was it higher than fair market value? And again, 
it's very it's very problematic when this billionaire uh, donor is not only you know whining and dining a Supreme Court justice on ultra luxurious vacations every year for decades, but also is buying property from him, including paying for the property where Justice Thomas's mother lived and potentially still does. And it's unclear, like was Harlan Crow charging Justice Thomas's mother rent or is his or has Harlan Crow basically, you know, provided free housing, right, to a member of Justice Thomas's family. And those properties were property uh, were, uh, was a property that Justice Thomas and his wife, Ginny Thomas, you know, were paying the property taxes for prior to Harlan Crow's purchasing of it. And now Harlan Crow is the one paying for that. There's so many layers of sketchiness to that entire situation. And again, part of what makes it so incredibly sketchy is the failure to disclose. Thomas hasn't disclosed this relationship, these purchases at all. This is all coming to light now. Additionally, this Harlan Crow guy is, um, seems quite, um, I mean, let me just say the fact. The fact is, is that Harlan Crow is also, for whatever reason, a collector of Nazi memorabilia. Um, Harlan Crow owns many properties and he also is a collector. And one of the things that he enjoys uh, collecting is Nazi memorabilia. Um, so, you know, he has um, uh, uh, not only things from like, you know, um, uh, you know, Nazi insignia and, and, and items. He also has things from Hitler as well. And that seems uh, questionable, questionable taste, um, why you would be, um, why you would be so fascinated or so interested in Nazi culture as to collect items um, that, uh, you know, that, that, capture that history. And I'm trying to be very judicious in what I'm saying, um, but you know, don't think the average person is going around collecting Hitler memorabilia for fun. And an additional layer to this as well is, is that Harlan Crow, in taking the Thomases on these extra luxurious vacations that again, Thomas has not been disclosing for decades, it hasn't been just Harlan Crow and the Thomases on these vacations. Another very popular, or I mean common, like person who has joined them on several of these occasions is someone named Leonard Leo. Who is Leonard Leo? Leonard Leo is the head of the Federalist Society, which is a private organization that is, um, let's see, they are an extreme right-wing group that um, focuses on uh, matters of the judiciary and their campaign for many years has been to redo the um, federal judiciary to make it much more favorable to right-wing interests and they were able to make enormous progress uh, for that kind of agenda under the Trump administration with the uh, appointments of Neil Gorsuch uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. All three of those candidates were, were backed by Leonard Leo 
and various dark money front organizations, meaning that there's these various PACs and other organizations where you don't know who's actually donating to them and where the money is coming from. But all of these um, groups um, supported the nomination of these three uh, right-wing candidates for the Supreme Court. And Leonard Leo has had a very important role in orchestrating all of that. So Leonard Leo is also one of these figures that is vacationing with, um, uh, with the Thomases, as well as Harlan Crow. Um, there's even, you can Google this. So at one of Harlan Crow's vacation homes, it's not a real photo. It's like a, whatever they call that. It's a painting that's made to look like a real photo. There is a painting that Harlan Crow commissioned of himself with Justice Thomas, as well as a couple of other uh, guys, and one of them is Leonard Leo. Um, and so it's their little in-club. And, you know, again, I mentioned about how um, it's just, it's very, um, uh, it's very clear, I think, to the, I don't know, to the general public that that seems to create some type of conflict of interest to have someone who, again, is a billionaire donor to right-wing causes who is clearly using his money to influence um, the course of American politics and American law and that he cultivated this relationship with the Thomases after Thomas became a Supreme Court justice. Um, and that smells funny. And um, the impropriety of that um, really taints public confidence in the Supreme Court. Now, I know that there has been some pushback, you know, in being like, well, you know, people are allowed to have friends. Um, yeah, of course people are allowed to have friends, but like, do your friends take you on half million dollar vacations? Um, and are you <laughs> a Supreme Court justice with enormous power? over the lives of hundreds of millions of people? I don't think so. And then also just, just provide a, con, you know, a contrasting example, right? Imagine if Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, who was the latest appointee to the Supreme Court, she's a black woman, she was appointed to the Supreme Court by President Biden. Imagine if Justice Jackson failed to disclose for decades that she had been going on all expenses paid vacations every year with George Soros. Now, who is George Soros? George Soros is another billionaire. He's a businessman, philanthropist, and also just kind of like, I don't know, the right wing's uh, boogeyman for all things that they don't like. Um, and it's just a, like an anti-Semitic trope that they use because George Soros is also Jewish. And so whenever they want to say that, I don't know, somebody is somebody they don't like or a cause they don't like, they'll say that it was backed by George Soros, which again is anti-Semitic dog whistling, but also to try to make this point that like to discredit whatever candidate or idea or campaign by saying that it's affiliated with George Soros and therefore, you know, it's been funded by, you know, this dark interest. So just imagine what kind of field day Fox News and Republicans would have 
if you know Justice Jackson or Justice Sonia Sotomayor had failed to disclose for decades that they had been having ultra luxurious um, vacations on an annual basis with George Soros. Oh, and then by the way, George Soros also bought the childhood home of Katanji Jackson and was allowing Katanji Jackson's mother to continue to live in the property for decades. Like, I mean, right? Do the, do the like reverse test. Would this cause an issue if the shoe was on the other foot? Um, it's incredibly problematic and Justice Thomas and his wife are, have honestly always been very controversial figures. There's just been a lot of things piling up. Um, at this particular moment, Justice Thomas's confirmation back in the early 90s also was very controversial because Justice Thomas was credibly accused of sexual harassment and like just the details are, are too much to go into for this one episode. But if you are unfamiliar with who Anita Hill is and the process by which Justice Thomas was um, confirmed to the Supreme Court, I do encourage you to do some of your own research. But Justice Thomas was credibly accused of sexually harassing Anita Hill, who used to work with Justice Thomas before he was on the Supreme Court. And in very scary parallels to how the Kavanaugh hearings went, Anita Hill was called to, to, to Capitol Hill and had to testify before Congress and, you know, it was just an entire panel of white men, including Joe Biden, who was a senator at the time, so <laughs> such a small world. And she was completely discredited and there was lots of massage noir going on there. And if you're unfamiliar with the term massage noir, Massage noir is a term, is a combination of the word misogyny, it is combina combination of misogyny, um, so um, uh, hatred of women, sexism towards women, plus uh, it being directed at a black woman, uh, because Anita Hill is a black woman, she's still alive. Um, and, uh, you know, she was discredited and they uh, did not take her testimony seriously and you know, uh, Justice Thomas was confirmed to the Supreme Court. Um, and his wife, Ginny Thomas, has also been the subject of enormous controversy for a long time as well, because she is incredibly active in right-wing circles, um, and including, <laughs> including around January 6th, including the insurrection, um, uh, um, on Capitol Hill on January 6th of 2021. Ginny Thomas has lots of ties to January 6th. Um, it is my understanding that she helped finance some of the groups that went to the Capitol and attacked the Capitol. She has spoken out and helped like organize. Um, January 6th very much has been pro the insurrectionists and um, is very much an election denier and um, uh, like has bought into the conspiracy theories around how, you know, the election, the 2020 election was stolen from, from former President Trump. I mean, some really fringe right-wing conspiracy stuff, uh, which unfortunately is not that fringe anymore, right? But anyway, so these are the Thomases, okay? This is one of our Supreme Court justices and his wife. 
And so now this additional, um, these additional problems have come forth. And I forgot to mention one thing as well. There was a case about the January 6th insurrection and you know the um, efforts to overturn the election orchestrated by Trump supporters that went before um, the Supreme Court. And Justice Thomas did not recuse himself despite his wife's involvement. So this is the, this is this is are the the folks we're talking about here. So um, we have a situation where we have a Supreme Court justice who um, is has has broken the law um, in terms of his obligations to disclose um, uh, certain financial um, benefits that he has received. Um, to avoid conflicts of interest in his role. And the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, a man named John Roberts, who was appointed by George W. Bush in the 2000s, has done nothing about it. He hasn't even made any public statement about it. And it's quite distressing because John Roberts presents a public image that he is very concerned about the public integrity of the court and the public um, believing in the um, believing in the institution of the Supreme Court. And yet at this point, he has a justice who has been credibly accused of leaking Supreme Court opinions, and that would be Justice Samuel Alito. He has a justice who has been credibly accused of sexual assault. That's Brett Kavanaugh. And he has a justice who has been credibly accused of sexual harassment, as well as bribery, right, financial corruption, uh, Justice Thomas. And Roberts has done uh, almost nothing on all three of those uh, matters. He has done a little bit, I guess, into investigating the matter of Supreme Court leaks the most recent being the Dobbs opinion um, in the summer, I guess it was the spring of 2022. And the Dobbs opinion was the opinion that overturned Roe v. Wade, which is the landmark 1973 Supreme Court case that um, held that the United States Constitution included a right to an abortion. And that case, Roe v. Wade was overturned last summer in a case called Dobbs. And prior to the opinion of Dobbs coming out, uh, a draft of the opinion was leaked to the public. And there were credible, there were credible accusations that Alito may have been behind the leak because he had also been credibly accused of leaking another opinion some years before. Um, and another influential right-wing donor who had cultivated relationships with Supreme Court justices, most particularly Samuel Alito and his wife, um, testified before Congress that Alito was the one behind um, those leaks. And um, Justice, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts has done nothing in terms of specifically about Alito, at least that hasn't been disclosed to the public. Anyway, that's a lot of information. So what, like um, summarizing that, um, you may have seen 
Justice Thomas's name a lot in the news lately, and that's what it's about. Because he has a very close relationship with this GOP mega donor billionaire who clearly is trying to buy access to one of the most influential people um, in the United States. And uh, Justice Thomas has, he and his wife have been riddled by scandal even before he took the bench. And so far, nothing seems to have happened. And I really wish that since the Democrats are in control of the Senate and the Senate is the branch of Congress that's like responsible for judicial matters and judicial appointments, um, I wish that they would at least call Justice Thomas to come testify before Congress. It seems like the least, honestly, that needs to be done um, because this behavior is unacceptable and obviously um, is going to negatively impact the public's confidence in the Supreme Court. Because why would you take a Supreme Court seriously when you have a justice who engages in such unethical behavior? And particularly when they're making decisions that have such concrete influences on the lives of so many. And where I want to transition from there into talking about what's going on in Brazil is talking about the makeup of the Supreme Court. And one thing I, you know, I have tried to emphasize in prior episodes is that, you know, I think in the United States, there is often a tendency to think that, you know, the American way is the only way, or it's the best way, um, or the right way. And, you know, it's just not the case. Um, there's so many different ways to organize society uh, and including within just you know democracies within societies that um, are you know healthy and successful and prosperous societies we can look at the supreme court as an example of that um, so for example as i mentioned the supreme court of the united states has nine people and they are appointed for lifetime uh, appointments and so most of the time, people on the Supreme Court stay on the Supreme Court until they die. Um, and that's happened with um, some of the more recent justices, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as well as um, Antonin Scalia. They were two justices on the Supreme Court who, um, who stayed on the bench until they died. Less commonly, you'll have Supreme Court justices who step down as happened with Anthony Kennedy um, during the Trump administration, which still has a lot of unanswered questions. That could be its own episode as to why he stepped down, down um, then, particularly because of, uh, I, I won't get into it um, with this episode, but there definitely are some questions about ties between the Trump administration and uh, why Justice Kennedy stepped down at that particular time. So the Supreme Court of the United States has nine justices that is not written into the United States Constitution. There's no specific number of Supreme Court justices that need to sit on the Supreme Court. And the exact number has fluctuated over US history. And they are appointed for, uh, for life. Now, that isn't the case um, in many other countries. And so to give, to, to provide Brazil as a contrasting example as we transition into talking about 
um, what's going on in Brazil. Um, the Supreme Court um, of Brazil has 11 members. And while they're not appointed for life, there is a mandatory retirement age of 75. And I looked it up that Canada has the same thing, interestingly enough. Canada also has, like there aren't set terms for their Supreme Court, um, but they also do have a mandatory retirement age of 75. Um, and were, those, were, that, were that automatic retirement provision applied to the United States, both just, uh, Justices Thomas as well as Alito, who I mentioned earlier, um, would be coming up quite soon for mandatory retirement if that was the system in the United States. And, um, um, and just as a side note, this is very fun. Um, the, if you've never done a Google search for the Supreme Court of Canada, I highly recommend you do it because they look like Santa Claus. Um, it's very entertaining. Their robes are red and white. I don't know the history behind why that particular regalia was chosen. Um, but yeah, they look like, like, you know, a group of like Santa Clauses in a choir. Um, it is amusing. That's the Canadian Supreme Court. Anyway, so again, the United States, our model for a Supreme Court is not a universal uh, not a universal model at all. Many countries do not have lifetime appointments. Um, and the number of Supreme Court uh, justices varies widely. I'll put a link to this in the show notes. There is an organization called Demand Justice, and they have been leading a campaign for expansion of the Supreme Court. Given um, recent, um, recent efforts to move the Supreme Court to such, an, to such a degree um, towards extreme right-wing ideology and the bad faith processes that have led to those appointments, it's too much to get into in this one episode. Um, but they, their campaign is pushing for four more seats on the Supreme Court. So there would be a total of 13 justices. And part of the idea there as well is the moderating force that having more justices can have. I mean, just think about that in any other aspect of your life, right? If you're trying to get three people to agree to something, you know, that can be a little bit challenging. Um, if you're trying to get nine people to agree to something, that's more challenging. If you have 13 people that you're trying to get to agree to something, it's even more challenging. And the idea of making it more than nine also comes from the idea that we don't want people's rights to hinge on the vote of a single person. And why, what, why is that relevant? As I mentioned, the Supreme Court of the United States has nine people on it. And opinions, which are what they call their decisions, are based on majority, on majority voting. So you only need five justices um, for, you only need five justices to make a majority opinion. Um, and so literally one vote can be the difference um, between the majority opinion and then those in the dissent. So there are a lot of five, four decisions. And the idea of adding more seats is also that like, 
it can't be that we have one person, a single person's vote can be the deciding vote between whether people have rights and whether they don't. And it literally is about whether people have rights or they don't because um, the Supreme Court, for various reasons related to right-wing capture of the court as well as other reasons, are, make, are ruling on uh, fundamental rights related to reproductive rights, related to labor rights, related to environmental rights, related to LGBTQ rights, body, bodily autonomy rights, all kinds of really, really fundamental issues. Um, and so I'll put a link in the chat or not in the chat, excuse me, in the show notes about demand justice so you can look into their campaign as well. And another theory that has been going around about um, expansion of the court is also on the idea of that um, the federal courts um, are divided into circuits. So we have the Supreme Court, as I mentioned, and below that, excuse me, there are 11 circuits plus a federal circuit which I won't get into the details of um, right now, but there's 11 circuits plus a federal circuit. And that's how they're divided by, ge by geographic regions. And so cases from those various regions are heard in those courts, even though they're all federal courts. So they're all, they're all courts applying the same law, a federal law. Um, but for example, the Ninth Circuit is where California sits. The Fifth Circuit is where Texas is. Those are just, uh, Florida is in the Eleventh Circuit. Those are just kind of a couple of examples. So anyway, our federal court system is divided into 11, cir 11 circuits plus the federal circuit. And so there's also this idea like there should be a justice per circuit um, at a minimum, um, which, would, um, which would be more than the nine that we currently have. And... Um, and um, so there are all of these efforts to um, expand the Supreme Court um, because of the bad faith uh, way that the Supreme Court has gone in the last several years since the Trump administration. Um, and... Um, it's not just about outcomes, but also about um, how the Supreme Court operates. The Supreme Court has been operating more and more and more. I mean, bad faith is really what I come down to. And I'm like, I have to do so many episodes to really get into why the way that opinions are being decided, why the way that cases are being decided right now, the way that opinions are being written. There are a lot of legal principles that are being discarded um, in favor of you know, producing um, outcomes that are favorable um, to right-wing donors like Le uh, Leonard Leo and Harlan Crow. going back um, to them. I'll also include in the show notes um, a link to the Twitter account of Steve Vladek. He is a legal scholar and um, he speaks a lot about SCOTUS-related issues, and SCOTUS meaning Supreme Court of the United States. Maybe someone else that um, listeners might be interested in following um, to you know, learn more um, about all of this.
And so um, transitioning now, so we have, oh, the other point uh, to, to transition us. So the makeup of the um, American Supreme Court is different from the makeup of the Supreme Court of many other countries. And the legitimacy of the Supreme Court in the United States has been called into question, has been seriously called into question because of um, these latest revelations about Justice Thomas. And one of the other things that this has been provoking is a demand for a code of ethics, a binding code of ethics for the Supreme Court. Now, what do I mean by that? Because I was just talking about how you know, Justice Thomas had to make certain disclosures. There are some limited limitations on the Supreme Court about what type of disclosures they have to make. But in terms of a binding code of ethics, there is none for the Supreme Court. There is one for all of the other federal justice judges. There is one for all of the other federal courts, but not for the Supreme Court. And interestingly, in Brazil, it's the same setup. The Supreme Court of Brazil does not have its own binding code of ethics, but the rest of the federal judiciary in Brazil does. And, you know, probably the logic behind both of those systems is that you would hope that you would put people on the Supreme Court that are ethical enough people that they could police themselves. But, you know, clearly that's not the case. And we've seen repeatedly throughout history, not just within the Supreme Court, right? When you have people with a lot of power and that power goes unchecked, I mean, it just creates um, an environment that's very ripe for abuse. So... Um, there are lots of discussions about implementing a binding code of ethics for the Supreme Court because of all of these recent ethical scandals. Um, but that doesn't solve the problem of what you do with someone who remains on the court like Thomas, who, I mean, there's no reason for the public to have any faith um, in what he does um, because the, the public is not his audience. Um, and his impropriety clearly hasn't bothered him. Um, and so something needs to be done about that. Speaking of impropri impropriety and uh, <laughs> ethical scandals and public corruption, um, uh, I'm going to transition now into fully transitioning now into the uh, into Brazil, and then I'll loop back to the United States at the end. So Bolsonaro, as I mentioned, who's the former president of Brazil, he, like Trump, is just like always involved in one scandal after another. And the latest one that has been making the rounds in Brazilian news is about some jewels, like actual jewels, diamonds and things like that. And what do I mean? <laughs> So while Bolsonaro was president, he, very much like Trump, cultivated some personal relationships with various foreign figures um, um, for what seemed to be uh, personal gain uh, rather than, you know, benefiting the country. And so one of these latest scandals was around jewels, like actual jewels that he received from... Um, Saudi Arabia. 
And on multiple occasions, he received gifts from Saudi Arabia worth millions and millions um, of dollars um, in, um, in various types of goods, um, including um, jewels. And the, the, what was um, one of the aspects of this jewel scandal and like why it's actually a scandal is that Bolsonaro had, so Bolsonaro had one of his ministers, Ministry of, uh, Minister of Energy is uh, Bento Albuquerque, this guy named Bento Albuquerque, who's also a military guy, bring back these jewels in a backpack um, on his way back from Saudi Arabia into Brazil. And the like customs people stopped him and ended up seizing the jewels because this was like all done wrong. Because basically the rule is, is that normally, right, like dignitaries and heads of states of other countries will often give presents, presents to other heads of, heads of state. But normally this is done in a very open and transparent way and they do a ceremony, right? And there's media there and it's all official. And then those presents become part of like the official patrimony, right? Um, it becomes part of the belongings of the country. Um, but this is not what Bolsonaro was attempting to do. He was attempting to have these millions of dollars worth in diamonds um, and other jewels part of his personal belongings. But if that's the case, you actually have to pay taxes on it. And it's very high. It's like 50% of the value of the thing um, you have to pay a tax on if you're going to incorporate that into like the personal property of Bolsonaro. But like he literally was trying to avoid that by having one of his ministers like put this in a backpack and like just, you know, go through the like nothing to declare line at the airport. Um, and so the, the, the jewels were seized. And on the same day that Bolsonaro's Ministry of Energy, Bento Albuquerque, was trying to like smuggle in millions of dollars worth of diamonds for Bolsonaro into Brazil, Bolsonaro was meeting with the, um, was at the house of the uh, ambassador for Saudi Arabia in Brasilia, which is the capital of Brazil, negotiating the sale of a refinery uh, in Brazil. Um, and this refinery was, did belong to Petro, Petrobras. And why does this matter? Okay, and what's Petrobras? This episode is definitely covering a lot of stuff. <laughs> so Petrobras is a state-owned um, uh, um, energy company. Um, and they, uh, uh, oil is like one of their main products and they, you know, refine oil. And Petrobras is very, very important in Brazilian politics. And again, it is a state-owned um, company. And obviously there are a lot of foreign um, nations and foreign interests who would love to privatize, right, this state-owned um, company so that they can make money. Um, rather than Brazil maintaining autonomy over its energy supply. So Bolsonaro, on the same day that, he, that he's, you know, designated one of his guys 
to try to smuggle in millions of dollars worth of diamonds received from Saudi Arabia for Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro is negotiating the sale of this very important uh, refinery that was part of Petrobras, but ended up being sold off to uh, Saudi Arabia, and that, that deal was finalized. So that seems problematic. And then, um, and um, Bolsonaro still continued to try to get the jewels, and apparently he somehow was able to take some of them with him when he fled to the United States at the end of last year, um, prior to the um, election of um, Lula in, uh, excuse me, in, in um, prior to the inauguration of the new president Lula. So to recap this little bit, I've talked about this in a prior episode. In November of 2022, there was another presidential election. Bolsonaro ran again and he ran against a guy named Lula, uh, Luiz Inácio da Silva, goes by Lula, who's a prior president of Brazil. And in this election, Bolsonaro lost and Lula won. And very similar to Trump, Bolsonaro is like denying it and like not, you know, not accepting the election results. And at the end of December, Bolsonaro left Brazil and went to Florida. And he was there until like late March um, and totally skipped the inauguration of the new president in early January. So very much like Trump. Um, not participating in the peaceful transfer of power. And again, like Trump supporters, Bolsonaro supporters also um, uh, did their own insurrection against the Brazilian capital on January 8th of this year. Anyway, so Bolsonaro also like flees the country with some of these jewels, but... Um, since he has since returned to Brazil, he has had to turn over um, all of these jewels that are clearly were bribes so that um, Arabian, uh, the, um, the Saudi Arabian government could, um, um, uh, could get this refinery that used to be owned by Petrobras in the Brazilian state. And um, the... <laughs> This is also just a detail, but apparently one of the other things that he had to return was a gun that had been inscribed with his name um, that he had received from the United Arab Emirates, um, which really struck me because, as I've mentioned in a prior episode, one of the things that Bolsonaro really tried to um, import from American culture to Brazil was gun culture, and he really expanded access to guns while he was in power. And so the idea that he also received like a gun inscribed with his name on it, and he like went on television and like talked about how sad he was to have to return this gun, just reminded me about that. And again, one of the ties between the right wing of the United States and the right wing of Brazil. Anyway, so this dude has to return all of these things that he um, that he wanted to um, that he got, you know, basically as a, as official bribery to be able to sell off this um, state-owned refinery. And what is so interesting about this, and to me feels like another parallel to Trump, is that Bolsonaro campaigned in in his first election. 
um, um, about being the anti-corruption candidate, the anti-establishment candidate, because the party that had been in power prior to him, PT, Partido Trabalhista, the Workers' Party, Labor Party, um, which is Lula's party, had been mired in various corruption scandals. And so Bolsonaro really got to take advantage of that ire and that like anti-corruption fervor to present himself as like totally non-corrupt dude. He's not a lifelong politician and he's going to come in and, you know, you know, bring, I don't know, reform stuff. Um, and it's like, it's just, the, you know, not, I mean, it's not a surprise to me, but like this dude who campaigned on like, you know, he might have crazy ideas, but at least he's not corrupt, like is incredibly corrupt. And then it also has come out that he was also using public funds to pay for meals and other things for his security detail while he's doing campaign events. So that's illegal. Uh, you can't be using public dollars um, to be funding your campaign events. So, you know, he's, uh, he's, his uh, security detail is already being paid by taxpayers to like provide security to him. But then he was also paying them on top of that with taxpayer money um, to provide security during his campaign events. So anyway, and he also appointed his own son to be like the ambassador to the United States. Just the amount of corruption is just just wild. And just to bring it full circle back to the United States <laughs> um, and just this, this whole thing. Why was why was Saudi Arabia so interested in developing um close relationships with Bolsonaro. Well, just like, you know, a lot of world leaders were trying to cultivate relationships with Trump, as well as what we've seen with, with, with Thomas as well, believing that they're like, that they can be influenced. And Saudi Arabia not only wanted this refinery, but Saudi Arabia was also really trying to boost its world image at the time because I mean Saudi Arabia is always dealing with one scandal or another because you know uh, you know women are not equal citizens there among other things but also around the same time that's also when the whole scandal around the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi happened and for those who don't remember or you know just to refresh everyone's memory Khashoggi um, was a um, a a citizen of Saudi Arabia who was also a permanent resident of the United States and he worked for the Washington Post. He was a journalist and he was a dissident. He regularly spoke out against the, the, the Saudi government. And while he was at the Saudi consulate in um, Istanbul, Turkey in 2018, he was killed. He was literally chopped up and dismembered uh, by Saudi agents. And... Um, in, and, um, uh, you know, this was a, like a horrific scandal and, um, Saudi Arabia was trying, is, is working on <laughs> boosting its public image after this, um, uh, gruesome assassination of a high profile, uh, journalist who was a, you know, outspoken critic of the Saudi regime. And so, um, Saudi Arabia has developed close ties, tried to develop close ties with the Bolsonaro regime in this effort to promote its public image because um, uh, 
not just the financial interest there of the refinery, but also the public, uh, like public image interest because there's something called the World Expo. Um, and the next World Expo is in 2030. And like all countries get to vote on who's going to host. And Saudi Arabia is one of the candidates. And Saudi Arabia wanted to guarantee Brazil's vote for Saudi Arabia as the host of the World Expo of 2030. And, um, and then apparently like Brazil, I don't understand exactly all the politics of like how the countries get to vote for the World Expo, but apparently like Brazil owed money um, to whatever the relevant international body is. And so because Brazil owed money, Brazil wasn't in a position to be able to vote on the next host of the World Expo. And so like there's also these, these considerations that part of the jewels and other gifts that were given to Bolsonaro were to for Bolsonaro to like pay off Brazil's debts so that Brazil could then vote and then vote for Saudi Arabia to host the 2030 World Expo. Um, the, the vote is later this year, by the way. It's in November of 2023. So we don't know yet actually who's going to host. But just, um, I'm realizing this is like getting complicated. So I'll just leave it there. But just, and like just circling back to the United States, right? So you have this like Washington Post permanent resident of the United States, Khashoggi, who gets assassinated by Saudi Arabia. And um, the United, and the, one of the like princes of Saudi Arabia, this guy named MBS, who's like buddy buddy with uh, the Trump and um, Jared Kushner, who's Trump's son-in-law. The United States, even under the Biden administration, has not has said that like they're not going to do anything um, about like Khashoggi's assassination. Like they're not going to take action against MBS, um, and that is just it's like it's whole other thing about how like governments around the world or the United States has definitely the, taken the position over and over again that they don't want to hold like heads of state and other high profile people from other count countries accountable or say that they, you know, should like, you know, that the um, MBS, you know, um, should be held, held accountable, you know, in American courts for his role in the assassination of Khashoggi because they don't want their own people um, to be able to be held liable in the tribunals of other countries. So it's, you know, uh, it's the same thing of like, you know, we will, um, we will allow these human rights abuses, or we're not going to do anything about these human rights abuses because we don't want our own people um, to be held accountable, um, you know, if the, if the roles were reversed. Anyway, that's a lot. Uh, I normally keep my episodes to less than this, but realized there was just so much to unpack here. Um, so anyway, there's a lot going on in the public corruption world, um, both in the United States and in Brazil. And the stuff about Bolsonaro that I was sharing happened, most of the relevant events happened some years ago during his presidency, but they're coming out now. And the same thing with Thomas. This corruption has been going on for decades in the case of Thomas, but it's all coming out now. And so they've both been top of mind for me. And um, um, and again, because of just, you know, the 
parallels as well as differences between how these two systems operate. Um, there were common threads in my head that I felt were, you know, worth um, trying to tackle in one episode. So that's a lot, and we're going to leave it there. Um, yeah, I hope that that's been helpful to digest some of the big news story, or at least one of the big news stories in the United States, and then, you know, one of the big news stories in Brazil. Um, lots of reasons to um, lack faith in some of these very high-profile leaders. Um, but now that the public is finally getting to know, oh, which is the last thing. Sorry, I'll add one more thing. There's also been commentators in Brazil who've been comparing this latest Bolsonaro scandal with Trump in the sense that Bolsonaro, when this was all happening, they were saying that one of the reasons that, like, you know, perhaps the story didn't break earlier is, you know, Bolsonaro didn't want this to impact his election chances last year, right? And this would obviously have not played well um, to the public during um, the 2022 Brazilian presidential election season. And so it's now coming out now, post-election. I mean, it doesn't, now it's not made a difference because, you know, he didn't win. But people are falling, talking about how, like, this whole Juul scandal is, you know, uh, not doing well for Bolsonaro's image. And the next presidential election is not for several years in Brazil. They just had one last fall. And so there's questions about whether Bolsonaro is going to have time to, you know, revamp his public image in time to be a legitimate candidate for the next um, presidential election in Brazil. Because at least for right now, he remains quite relevant. And there are still a lot of people rallying around him to be the next candidate. And they were saying in comparison that Trump is in a much better position uh, for re-election because the presidential election in the United States is already next year, in 2024. And while Trump has uh, many open matters against him, both criminal and civil, uh, you know, he could run out the clock, basically, until the election. And so some of the commentators I was listening to covering Brazilian news were talking about how um, Trump might still be able to win the Republican nomination despite all of these recent scandals coming out about Trump that I didn't get into in this episode um, um, because he could potentially just run out the clock. Whereas Bolsonaro doesn't have his favorable position because he's still years away from the presidential campaign and these scandals are coming out now and tarnishing his reputation, creating more room for uh, another candidate, you know, um, to come out and really um, be the new face of, um, of his party in Brazil. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, that was a lot. Um, but thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you next time.